And it's a blessing this morning to come and bring the word, the title of uh, the sermon this morning uh, from Luke 7, 18-35, as Richard just read, is dealing with unmet expectations, which I'm sure we all can relate to, dealing with unmet expectations. At every stage in life, we go through this process of expecting what life will look like, and then we have to recalibrate. We have to rethink. We have to reevaluate. This is not exactly what happened. You ask any eight-year-old, what do they think, what do they think life's going to look like when they're an adult? And they'll tell you some pretty uh, funny things, we'll say that, and uh, we'll see. Not all those things come to fruition, do they? At every stage of life, we go through this. And, and sometimes it's really easy to adjust our expectations. Sometimes it's very easy. We say, okay, God, this is clearly what you have for me, and I'm going to follow. And then other times, we're sitting there and we're wondering, God, why? Why this? Why did you order my life in this way? God, you're in control of everything. And so we struggle. This, this happened for very vividly for me. One time when I had my expectation that something was going to go one way, it did not. Uh, Abby and I were dating, my wife, we were dating at the time, kind of getting more serious, going towards uh, marriage, towards engagement, and I decided I was going to show her, really like put my game to the next level, like I'm going to be an A-plus husband, I'm going to make dinner for you, and I'm going to make the fanciest thing I could think of. And so what was that? Well, it was, don't laugh, it was chicken, like flattened, and I put pizza sauce in it, and mozzarella cheese, some pepperoni, I thought, clearly, this is the fanciest thing that you could have. All the fine dining restaurants through all of France are clearly serving this dish. I called it pizza chicken. And so put that in the oven, thought, oh, this is going to go great. Took it out, smelled great. First bite, oh, it was actually pretty good. I mean, obviously, it's pizza, basically. And I was like, yeah, this tastes pretty good. I was like, yeah, all right. And then I took a second bite. Texture, a little off. I thought, this is probably just like the cheese. It's fine. Third bite in, I knew something was wrong. And so to my horror, I look down and I see a color you don't want to see in chicken. Now, I like my steak with some, some uh, pink and some red in it, but I don't like my chicken that way. So I said, Abby, spit it out. This is not cooked. And she's like, I know. And um, <laughs> but why, did, why did you not tell me? Well, she clearly didn't want to be rude. She didn't want to hurt my feelings, apparently. So that really put a damper on the evening. Um, the, like every couple minutes, we'd be like, does your stomach feel weird? Is my stomach? I, we got to get food po Googling how quick to know that you have food poisoning from eating raw chicken. And so we got dinner somewhere else. Did not go as I expected it, expected it to. So often for us as Christians, we walk through life as people. We walk through life. And we come across times where we have to change our expectations because God works in ways that are unexpected. And again, sometimes it's easy to adapt to. Other times it's extremely difficult. In today's passage, we see both John the Baptist uh, dealing with expectations of the Messiah. And then in a much different way, we see the Pharisees dealing with expectations of the Messiah, both of which were left unmet Obviously, how their faith behind it, the heart behind it, how they respond is going to be much different. But this is what these, uh, these uh, John the Baptist and the Pharisees are dealing with. So our, our main point today is daily faithfulness requires submitting our expectations to God's 
operations. Daily faithfulness requires submitting our expectations to God's operations. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. And may we rely more on the Son. In his name we pray. Amen. So, so this passage is divided into three questions. So we're going to follow those three questions as we go, go along. Our first question, John brings a question to Jesus. And John questions the plan of the Messiah. And this is a very surprising question from what we know about John. He asks, uh, he sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, of all people, why would John the Baptist be asking this question? Shouldn't John know more than anyone else, besides maybe Jesus' parents, that yes, this is the Messiah? Is not John the forerunner for Christ? Is not John, while in Luke chapter 1, while in the womb uh, of his mother, when Mary comes to Elizabeth and Jesus is in the womb of Mary, John leaps? Is it not John who baptizes Jesus in Luke 3? And as he baptizes him, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father's voice is heard, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. How can the forerunner of Christ, the forerunner for the Messiah, now question, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Well, it's because John's circumstances have changed. They've become increasingly difficult, far more difficult than he would have imagined it, uh, if the Messiah were to begin his ministry. We know from Luke uh, 3.20 and from the parallel account of this story in Matthew 11 that John right now sits in a prison cell. He sits in a prison cell. What was his crime? Well, for preaching the gospel for telling Herod the truth, that no, Herod, you're in sin because you married your brother's wife. Herod did not like that. Herod's wife did not like that even more, and so they threw him in prison. And John, as he's preparing the way for the, for the, uh, for the Messiah, he says that the root is already laid at the axe of the tree. And so he's just waiting for Jesus to pick that axe up and swing it for judgment to come. And he keeps hearing his reports of what Jesus is doing, and it's not judgment. And so John is dealing with this difficulty, not only of his circumstance, but an expectation of the Messiah that was left unmet. It's very common to expect that when the Messiah would come, you know what would come with it? The kingdom. The kingdom of God would immediately usher in. The Davidic dynasty would be reestablished. The Lord would lead his army to overthrow the Roman Empire. And I'm sure John had in his mind Isaiah 61.1 that when the Messiah would come, the captives would be set free. And yet, what happens? John is in a prison cell, still waiting. Day after day, week after week. John was certain of the Messiah, certain of what he was to do, and when he, and when he was going to do it. But when Jesus began to operate in ways that were unexpected and disappointing of John, he begins to doubt. He begins to wonder, is this really the guy? Is Jesus truly the one we've been waiting for? John had eschatological expectations that were not being met by Jesus' operations. John once was thinking, yes, the Messiah has arrived. Should not the end of the age also arrive? So he asked Jesus, are you the one? Or is there someone else coming? If we're honest, can we not relate to John the Baptist here? When life is 
good when life is going according to our plan and our plans fit pretty well with what God has orchestrated in our life. It's really easy to trust in God. But what happens when life becomes difficult? How do, we, how do we react in the midst of our own trials and tribulations and struggles and grief and disappointments? Do we ever, like John the Baptist, begin to question God? Does our faith become shaken? Do thoughts of doubt come across our head and our hearts? Can we not relate to John what he's feeling in this moment? Because the way that God has ordered our life seems to run counter to what we've ever expected. And so our relationship with the Lord struggles. Daily faithfulness requires submitting our expectations to God's operations. So what does this mean about John? Let's keep reading. We'll see how Jesus reacts to John's question. So the two disciples then, in verse 20, approach Jesus. And they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus doesn't respond. What does Jesus do? He begins to heal and heal. And heal and heal, and the, the lame are able to walk. Their exorcisms begin to happen. And so, before the disciples, they see the Messiah in full action, doing only what the Messiah could do. And so, they're sitting there like, clearly, this is the Messiah. Clearly, this is the guy. Only the Messiah could do these things. Look at the miracles that he is performing over and over and over again. Oh man, we asked if he was really the one. This is going to be awkward. All right, let's just get out of here. Maybe he'll forget. Jesus is clearly very busy healing. Maybe he'll forget. We'll just get out of here before he remembers. And then Jesus turns to them and says, Hey, guys, before you go, what was that question you had for me? <laughs> well, Jesus, you see, it's not really my question. No, no, I'm not asking it. I'm sure. But, but John, John the Baptist, you remember that guy? He's asking, uh, are you the one? Or is there someone else to come? I love Jesus' response. It is not in anger. He doesn't say, well, you go back and tell John. No, that's not what his response is. His response is a corrective rebuke. For me, I read this, I, I see a response full of compassion, knowing exactly the circumstance that John the Baptist is in, knowing exactly what John is going through. So his response is, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Notice, no judgment. Oh, and go and tell them this also. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Clearly, this list of miracles points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the one to come. You tell John that clearly you saw numerous Old Testament prophecies be fulfilled through the miracles I have just performed in front of you. But then Jesus adds this tag on the end, this mild and loving rebuke. Jesus, knowing what John is going through, gives him a very pointed and corrective, uh, uh, I should say, pointed correction to John. This little beatitude, blessed are those who are not offended of me, or blessed are those who do not stumble over me. Jesus is painting a picture of one who's about to fall into a trap. Blessed are those who do not fall into the trap of their own sins and their own doubts, but instead accept Jesus' claims, accept Jesus for who he is and what he does and draws near to him. In my estimation, John proclaims this word, or Jesus proclaims this word to John to correct John's focus. Take his eyes off himself. 
place his vision directly onto Jesus, to accept Jesus for who he is as he is. How true is it that when we are in the midst of our own depression, we are so focused on ourselves, our eyes are on ourselves. God, help me get out of this. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. There's no way out. And yet, what the Bible continually calls us to do is to place our eyes off of ourselves and place them upon Jesus. It's counterintuitive. But for Christians, that is the solution. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Church, we must never fall into the temptation that I see many of those who claim to be Christians all around us do, which is they, they claim to be Christian. They would say, no, I'm not offended by Christ, but then they show their hand and show, no, I actually they are offended by him. What does this look like? Well, it looks like every time... And, I, and I've fallen guilty of this. Every time I, I share the gospel and I think for a moment, I should probably hold back on the full truth of the gospel. Maybe I need to water it down a little bit so it would be a little more likable to this person, a little more palatable to the sinner. So I hold back. I, if you water down the gospel, you are, maybe that's showing your own offense of Christ. You see this in, in different uh, circles of, of more liberal theology where they take one aspect of Christ and they emphasize all of that, forgetting the rest. We see this in liberation theology, the health and wealth gospel proclamation. I even remember growing up in middle school kind of catching the back end of the whole Jesus is your homeboy movement. And it uh, didn't make sense to me then and it makes far less sense now. So recently I've rediscovered Plato, which sounds ridiculous, it is. I haven't, like, obviously, like, not like, oh, I was at the store and I found a bunch of Play-Doh. I brought it home and said, Abby, look, look what I found. No, not quite like that, although it's a good idea. No, um, Abby and I were babysitting for Caleb and Ruthie Shaw. They got two girls. Their oldest is Annie. She's two, and she wanted to play with Play-Doh, and I was having a good time. I made this thing that I thought looked like a horse. Annie was very impressed. My wife, not so much. But what's so fun about Play-Doh is you can take it, mold it, form it into whatever kind of uh, thing you want it to be. This must never be our approach when it comes to Christ. He is not a lump of clay that we form and manipulate into whatever image we see fit. He's not someone that we take and change and forget what we don't like and just add things that we want. No, Christ is not what we want him to be. He is not a lump of clay. He is the cornerstone upon whom we are built upon as his church. And we conform to him. It is never the other way around. So church, do not stumble. Do not be offended because of what God is doing in your life. And it is not what you envisioned or expected. No, we continue to place our hope and our trust in him, regardless of our present circumstance. Daily faithfulness requires submitting our expectations to God's operations. The second question comes, does John's disciples leave? And Jesus takes this moment to clarify the person of John. Maybe worried about the crowd hearing the disciples' question of Jesus, and then maybe worried because Jesus gives a rebuke to John, Jesus begins to ask some revealing questions about John in order to clarify who he is. And his question is this, what did you go into the wilderness to see? Jesus gives three options. First, did you go out to see a reed swaying in the wind? If this was a uh, literal reference, I doubt anyone would go out to the desert Make sure they bring enough food for the entire day just to go watch desert vegetation just kind of flopping around there. 
Perhaps Jesus is making a, a figurative picture of John, that John was not a reed swaying the wind. He was not spineless or uncertain. But no, that John was certain of his proclamation. Or did you go and see a man dressed in soft clothes? We know that John dressed in camel's hair. You ever felt a camel, not the softest of animals? Not the nicest of clothing? And why would you go into the desert to see a man dressed in soft clothes when and a much easier journey is just go to the palace, stay where you are, stay in the town, go where the rich people reside. No, what drew you to the wilderness is to hear a prophet, but more than just a prophet. Yes, falling in line with the Old Testament prophets that have come before John, this prophet has seen the fulfillment of his prophecy in the Messiah before him. This prophet himself fulfills a prophecy. As Jesus quotes in verse 27 of our text, is quoting Malachi 3.1. This not only makes clear that John was the forerunner to the Messiah, but also Jesus is the one whom we've been waiting for. And so Jesus says this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. All right, got my notes out. None is greater than John. I'll circle that a couple times. Yet the one in, who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Cross that out. Uh, John is not the greatest. Okay. I love when Jesus speaks like this. He draws us in. It's very intentional. Uh, it's impactful. We can't, we can't pull this off. I, I, not, don't even try. Imagine you're at a cookout and someone's, Adam, do you want a hot dog or a hamburger? Well, I tell you, among of those two options, none is greater than a hot dog. All right, weird response. Okay, one hot dog it is. Well, let me finish. Yet the, the least of the hamburgers is greater than that hot dog. All right, Adam, you can go. I'm sorry I invited you. That's my fault. Don't worry about it. No, we, we can't quite pull it off the same way Jesus does. But why does Jesus do this? Why, what is he trying to point us to? Remember John's function in the history of redemption. He is the bridge from the old to the new. Yes, he follows in line of the Old Testament prophets, but he serves as this gap between promise and fulfillment. In Luke, as we keep going through the, the book of Luke, we see promise, fulfillment, promise, fulfillment. And here is the Messiah, the fulfillment. And John serves as this bridge. And so as the Messiah, he ushers in the kingdom. He also ushers in a new era of history. And all those, a part of the kingdom, will be far greater than whatever has come before, including John the Baptist. So what is Jesus telling us? Pursue the kingdom. And the crowd, upon hearing this from Jesus, immediately splits into two parties. Vastly different reactions. The first, the crowd, which is including the tax collectors, rejoice and declare God just. Why? Well, apparently they've already been baptized with the baptism of John. They've seen John's ministry. They've repented of their sins and believed. And now hearing that Jesus does not condemn John but validates John's ministry, rejoice. They've already accepted God's purpose for their life and been obedient. And then there's the other group, the religious Elites, the Pharisees, the lawyers, leaders of the synagogues, those who would hold equivalents of PhDs in the law. What do they do? They hear this from Jesus. They hear this uh, uh, support of John. And they reject God's purpose. Why would they reject God's purpose? Well, it does not fall in line with their expectations. 
does not fall in line with uh, what they expected the Messiah to do or say. The Pharisees thought, really deep down, they thought they deserved salvation. No, we follow all the law. We, in fact, create new laws just to follow, and we follow those perfectly. What do we, when John comes to us and says, repent, what do we need to repent about? I'm a Pharisee. There's, I don't need to repent. I don't need to get into that water. So they reject John's message. And now upon hearing that Jesus actually validates John's message, they say, no, this clearly cannot be the Messiah. They reject the purpose of God. So they sit there in their self-righteousness, refusing to repent, rejecting the message of Christ. That turns, uh, turns us to our third question of the text. He then turns to this group of people and asks this, how will I compare the people of this generation? We see Jesus rebukes the self-righteous people. So how can I compare them? What are they like? Well, they're like a bunch of children. A bunch of children? I mean, that's a good burn, Jesus, but what does that mean? A few commentators have, have, have uh, called this the parable of the brats. They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance, we sang a dirge, you did not weep. Parable of the brats. This is a picture of children who when they don't get their way, they decide, I'm done. They're wanting all the other kids to go along. Listen, I want you guys to be happy now. How come you're not being happy? Now I want you guys to be sad. How come you're not being sad? That's it, you're not following me, I'm out. I can't set the rules, I'm out. They're like little children who if they can't decide what happens, if they can't make the rules, they don't want to play. The Jewish leaders and others who refuse to listen to the message of John, who refuse to listen to the message of Jesus, are like these little children who grow impatient because Jesus and John did not follow the rules that they set. Jesus and John did not operate according to their expectations. Because they're not, they're not uh, uh, operating according to their expectations, they're just going to reject the teaching altogether. Now, Jesus is about to give a, uh, a note of, of the complaints that the Pharisees have about Jesus and John. And I just got to say, what Jesus is saying is not really the problem with the complaints is the fact that these complaints don't really point to issues with eating or drinking, but point to issues that you are really rejecting the message. You just want to reject me no matter what. You can't, there's no making you happy. So what, what, what do they complain about? Well, John, he came fasting. He would not eat. He would not drink. So the Pharisees say, clearly he has a demon. Anyone that lives like that, so countercultural, out in the wilderness, refusing to eat or drink, this guy has a demon. There's no way we should listen to his message. And then Jesus comes, eating and drinking as culturally appropriate. And what do they say to Jesus? You're a drunkard and a glutton. Oh, and by the way, you still hang out with tax collectors and sinners, which we don't like very much. Contradictory. In their minds, they don't see the problem. They can smooth over whatever contradictions they need to in order for them to keep adhering to the message that they prefer. But they reject Jesus. They reject the message of John because it does not fall in line with what they expect the Messiah to do. 
It does not fall in line with what they expect the Messiah to proclaim. They expect the Messiah to come to them first and be like, you guys are so great. You guys are so righteous. Now salvation's for you guys. And when the Messiah comes and does not bring that message, what happens? They reject him. Is that not part of what happens when we encounter those who do not believe? If Jesus is not the Jesus that they feel is best, and they cannot still dictate the terms of how they're supposed to live their life, then they reject him altogether. If Jesus calls us to do this thing, and that doesn't really fit with how I want to live, then I'm just going to reject Jesus altogether. It's not, a part, it's not just merely being offended by a part, but what we see is even being offended by a part of Jesus means you're offended by him entirely. They say, the Pharisees say, no, Jesus is not Lord, but I am Lord. I am Lord over my own life. They, the, these who fall in line with the Pharisees, and even maybe some of us here this morning, we place ourselves in a position as rulers over our own lives and reject anything that does not fit with what we expect, with what we want, with what we think is best. And, and when I see people who operate in this way, they are always moving the, the goal line. The, the standard keeps being more and more ridiculous. The contradictions grow more and more, and they smooth them over in their own mind. This group of children, they're like brats because they don't get their way. So they decide, I'm going to reject the whole thing. And yet there's another group of children. A group of children who accept God's workings and God's plans, who accept the words of John, and therefore accept the Messiah. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus ends in verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. Meaning that those who accept God's ways, God's plans, God's purposes are shown to be correct. Those who follow after the words of Jesus will be vindicated. Parallel to the beatitude Jesus gave earlier, that those who are not offended by him will be blessed. That is, wisdom is justified by those looking for Jesus. In the highs, in the lows, in the good times, in the turmoil, they continue to place their eyes upon him. So if you do not know Jesus as your Lord, right now, you're a Pharisee. You've rejected him. Saying, no, no, I want what's best. I set the rules. I am Lord over my life. That's you, just know that one day you will be face to face with the creator of the universe who has uh, knit together every molecule of your body and you will have the audacity then to say, I know what's best for me, not you. Do not be confused because Jesus does not emphasize judgment in this passage. Judgment will come in Luke. We'll see it come. But judgment has already begun and will, he is yet to reach its complete culmination because the Lord is patient. So hear the message of Jesus. Hear the message of John. Repent of your sins. Confess to Christ as confess Christ as Lord and be baptized. And there's other of us this morning. We're believers, but honestly, what we're dealing with is really difficult. And honestly, what we're dealing with is far more difficult than we imagined. And it keeps getting worse. It doesn't keep getting better. And there seems to be no end in sight. You're like John sitting in that jail cell and you're saying, Okay, is this going to end? 
I can deal with it a little bit, but I expected it to end by now. And we're trying to walk faithfully, but if we're honest, what's going on underneath is really testing you. It's stretching you to your limits. And underneath all those emotions of what you're feeling are hints of doubt in the Lord. You're like John, where at first it was fine, but now it's gone on far too long. You're like the psalmist in Psalm 79 who asked God, How long, Lord, how long until you act? And this, this could apply to us in any arena of life. It could be our career. We pursue this career. We thought God was, was in this pursuit, and it's been 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years. And the more we're in it, the less it, it keeps getting more and more stressful. We keep getting passed over more and more promotions. We're wondering, God, why? I felt like you called me to this career, to this vocation. What is happening? Could be expectations that we've placed on uh, our, our marriages and our spouses, on our, our children, our family members. It could be expectations of just health going on that right now you're dealing with a, a diagnosis or a physical illness that is just str- keeping you down and it's struggling and it's, it's struggling just to keep going and you keep waiting for God to do something and you're waiting, Lord, how long? And what we learned from this passage, it's good to go to the Lord with your doubts. He does not act in anger towards John. We go to him, we ask, we learn from John here as well. We ask Jesus, help us to correct our focus. Ask him to help in the waiting. Blessed is he or she who is not offended of me. In the midst of our difficulties, we still put our faith and trust in God. That we don't, we don't cheap, uh, we don't you know, take for granted or forget or uh, purposely take away any part of God's word that we hold to it fast, that we look at the full picture of Christ and we say, no, I'm going to pursue him, regardless of what that means in a world around us that is growing more and more hostile to the truths of the Bible, the truth of Christ. That we proclaim the gospel more and more. We are not offended of the gospel, but even in the midst of that hostility, we do not back down. Blessed is the one who commits their entire life to following after the Lord, regardless of their personal trials. That we do, not, uh, we do not forget truths of Scripture. We do not forget Christ. And even in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of God's clearly ordering our, way in a way, ordering our world in a way that we don't want, we say, God, I'm following after you. So, of course, in the, in the meantime, we pray that God would intervene. We pray and ask, God, please work in this situation. Bring me reprieve. But we take comfort in knowing that we are following the path of wisdom. We turn our eyes to the one who one day will bring an end to all grief and trial and pain. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we are so thankful for Christ, for who he is. I pray for all of us this morning that we would not take any part of him as an offense, that we would follow after him wholeheartedly, that we would not give up. Lord, if any of us this morning are having doubts, that we would come to you this morning and ask for you to intervene, to ask you to help, ask for you to give us a word even of correction to help get our focus off of ourselves and onto you. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.